that's kind of what got me into events and festivals. I just saw the power of art to bring people together and to really promote cultural diversity and connect people. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Hilsenbrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the field of print media and multiples. Hello, print friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products. In 1915, Ross F. George published the first edition of the Speedball textbook, which quickly became the superlative resource for artists and letterers of all ages and skills. This is a great resource for the gig poster gang or folks who want to develop their own fonts and letter forms for screen and relief printed work. The new 25th edition of the Speedball textbook has a convenient lay-flat construction and 120 pages of examples, contributors' works, and innovative technical insights that is sure to inspire and appeal to scribes and enthusiasts across the spectrum of skill and experience. There's a link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Legion Paper. Legion is a fine art paper company representing the best papers in the world. They either stock it, source it, or make it. With brands like Stonehenge, Somerset, Coventry, Reeves, Arches, and more, Legion is the best paper resource for every artist and printmaker's needs. Learn more about the variety of paper Legion stocks at www.legionpaper.com. My guest this week is Ina Arawi. We talk about growing up on a small, back-to-land community in northern New Zealand, her dramatic escape from Italy on one of the last flights out of the country during the early days of the pandemic, the incredible printmaking festival she's founded called Printopia, how Auckland doesn't have an open access printmaking studio, and what she's planning to do about it. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to get festive with Ina Arawi. Hi Ina, how's it going? I'm great Miranda, how are you? I'm really good. I'm really good. I am so happy to connect with you. I just love meeting other people in the print world in general, but particularly those who are trying to kind of do what I'm trying to do, which is get the word out, build some things. You and I have the dubious and prestigious honor of hosting print festivals and everything that goes into that. So we share that in common and I'm just delighted to get to know you better and hear more about what you've been up to. Yes, it's my pleasure. I'm very excited to be here today. So before we get into all of that juicy deep stuff, let's do the who you are, where you are, what you do questions. Okay, I'm Ina Arawi. I'm a print artist and I organize an annual printmaking festival in Auckland, New Zealand called Printopia Festival of Original Print. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> majority of what I do. I do a lot of other Beautiful. things. That's, I think what's most important today. Absolutely. And then where did you grow up and what was art like in that part of your life and the early landscape of Ina? So I grew up in a small rural community in the far north called Fern Flat, which is pretty much a valley where a lot of alternative lifestyle type people live. And when I was growing up, a lot of my friends' parents had migrated there in the 70s during the hippie movement. And so there were a lot of creatives. There were potters and musicians and weavers and furniture makers and like everybody designed and built their own house and it was a very, very creative scene. And my mom, who's originally from California, was and still is a fabric artist and she had mm. this huge studio called the sewing room. <laughs> Where I spent a lot of my spent a lot of my childhood in there making things and being surrounded by all of her beautiful fabric art and she would sew scarves and purses and she would hand make shoes from fabric with embroider and tie-dye and batik uh, shoes and I remember her cutting cutting out and 
cutting out the leather for it and the smell of the glue and hammering down the, the sole of the mm-hmm. And she would like sell her, go to the local market and, and sell her work there. And so art was very much a part of my, my upbringing. And our, our primary school was very arts focused. It had this curriculum which believed in fostering children's creativity with art not just being a subject but it's a way of learning so like I remember turning up at school one day and the teacher said right it's autumn go outside and just experience autumn (laughs) and then come back and write a haiku poem about it so it was just like a very kind of freeing expressive way of of like primary school was I didn't realize until much later as an adult how lucky I was to mm. have a very kind of they supported us to express ourselves creatively and, and verbally and so it was it was really a, a really great upbringing in fact it was so art was so much a part of everything that we did that I just assumed it was part of everybody's life that's right. why I never mm-hmm. thought to go and do art. I never studied art at university level because I just thought that's what everyone did, you know, just like, but no, then I realized everyone plays sport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I, I know that a little bit, I think, just from growing up in, I don't think as as much of, of sort of a, hippie back to nature community as you, but Olympia, Washington is very progressive in that way and not really a sports town, not really a town where people are maybe living a more mainstream life. And so people do go there to have something a little bit closer to nature and a little bit closer to the arts. And so Mm -hmm. I remember leaving home as well and realizing that number one, not every one city was breathtakingly beautiful and being really confused by that. (laughs) And then number two, just really understanding that I had had that privilege and that, that special experience of, of getting the value of art never questioned and instead really wed into childhood. Mm. Yeah. 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 And so did this inspire you to study art or continue to be a maker as you moved on in school? So in high school, I literally just lived in the art class and that's where mm. I did my first woodblock. I remember carving my first woodblock, which I still, my mom still has it actually. Amazing. <laughs> and, I love that. And we did a whole kind of like print series of different types of printmaking, but I just I just remember carving that block and I think what got me hooked for life was it was the first time that I'd kind of experienced that that flow state that artists get mm. in you know or I, I guess even maybe sports people or people who are like really into something they get into this wonderful flow state where time stands still and it was the first time that I kind of achieved that just being able to be really present and in the moment really kind of meditative kind of transcendent experience and so I just have always done wood woodblock carving but I never thought to go into university one reason <laughs> I know why <laughs> because we my sister was an amazing she's an amazing artist and mm. her whole her whole process and approach to art was completely different to mine but I thought because I looked up to my older sister I thought well that's a real artist and that's how you be an artist and I'm not the same so I can't be an artist I must mm-hmm. Be. Mm-hmm. yeah and she really wanted to go to art school it was her dream and so I thought well she can be the artist in the family and my passion was actually I loved I loved architecture but I had a horrible teacher so then I decided no, I'm not going to teach anymore <laughs> but we had an amazing collection of National Geographics I think we had like a whole collection and I remember looking through those as a child and thinking wow it's amazing and there's an actual job. Oh my God, I want that job. So like, yeah. I was like, no, nah, I'm going to go to university and I'm going to study cultural anthropologist. I'm going to be a cultural anthropologist and that's my thing. And I ended up getting a master's in cultural anthropology. So I, and I still love it. And it definitely influences the way I see the world and definitely has a huge yeah, impact and influence on, on me today. And I, I don't regret it at all, but 
yeah, that was my kind of my trajectory rather than thinking about studying studying art, even though that's the only thing that I put an effort into at high school. I got like top of the school for photography. I love photography and printmaking because photography was about well, we did black and white, and so it was about capturing the light and balancing mm-hmm. the dark and carving the wood block was the same. You're carving out the light, and so. I really like those two subjects, and that's and geography. And otherwise, everything else I just didn't care about, and I <laughs> just got A's for art and then C's for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so when did printmaking find its way back into your life? So you had this. I love that experience of the first flow state because I feel like that's something that some people spend their whole lives chasing. Is is that that little slice of ego death we get when our brain finally shuts off and we just get to create. And, and then you did the cultural anthropology path, but printmaking must have worked its way back at some point for you to bring us here today. Yes. I mean, even though I went to university and then got into like events and working for NGOs, I always did woodcuts. And mm. and then when I was living in Morocco, I I went to the local Alliance Francaise and studied printmaking there. And in Tangier, went to the Spanish Institute and they had a beautiful press and used that. Um, so I've always kind of just done it just on the side, but just like when I needed to, when I had something I just needed to get out. I was like, oh, mm. you know, usually kind of a big world event possibly that I just kind of just needed to kind of meditate on and so carve a block for that. Or just maybe an idea that I had inside that I just wanted to kind of think about more and so I had to make it work about that. So I've always kind of done it, but it wasn't until about 2015 that I – so one of the kind of the top – well, my – yeah, one of the top woodcut artists in New Zealand is a guy called Michael Tuffery. And when Mm -hmm. I was at high school doing my final year study – I literally just found a magazine and a book with his woodcuts and used him as my artist model. And his his carving is amazing. And then I in 2015, I had the opportunity to do a workshop with him. Mm. And in that workshop, I learned so much. Like in three hours, I learned more than I'd learned in like three years <laughs> of high school. But he's an amazing artist and an amazing and an amazing teacher as well. And so then that inspired me to get to kind of put a bit more focus into it. So then I started looking for a, a print studio that I could join, a print group, and and then it just kind of evolved from there. I started to exhibit in group shows and be part of the, the local print council and print groups. And then I thought, well, I want to do a solo show, so I, I went part-time at work so that I could do focus oh, on wow. the show. Yeah. And then... Yeah, and so that's kind of how it escalated. And then and then I thought, well, actually, why not just be a full-time artist? I was living in Sicily, and I really missed having a print community, so I thought, why mm. not go to Florence and study? I challenged myself with thinking in reverse. Why not do etching, and why not go to one of the places where etching originated from in Florence? So I went there and... Florence was amazing because it really gave me the opportunity to really examine the history of print, which I hadn't up until then. I just done, I just done my prints for a love of doing printmaking for myself. But being in Florence gave me an appreciation for printmaking and the history, the history mm-hmm. of printmaking, and also its importance in the history of art and seeing how print had progressed and conceptually and what it has to say in in contemporary culture. And so that kind of what that's what then led me to do more research about printmaking here in New Zealand and then really wanted to showcase what was happening here. And that's kind of what led to Printopia, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so was this at the the 
Il Bisonte Foundation of Contemporary Art and Printmaking, and that's in Florence, yes? Because yes. I, I had never heard of this place until I started to connect with you. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could just speak to it a little bit, because I'm mm-hmm. I'm deep in printmaking's business, and I had not heard mm-hmm. of it, but it sounds like a pretty incredible place. So just maybe for people who are kind of intrigued by this connection, what is that that place and what, what did you do there and, and all of that? Yeah, well, because I was already living in Italy and I got my residency and I just love Sicily. And so I thought, well, I want to stay in Italy. So I did some research around to say, well, where's the best place to do it to study traditional etching? And there was a place in Venice and there was a place in Florence. And I was kind of like weighing up between the two and I was researching the two places the other one is that very famous place in Venice. I forget the name of it. But researching more about Il Bizonte, I was like, that's the one. Because the woman who found it, she was awesome. So the guy who runs it now is the, the nephew of, of the founder. And she was, she worked, in, the, she worked in, in media and she helped, during World War II, she helped smuggle out German refugee, like Jewish yeah, um, Jewish people and like my grandfather was a, a German a Jewish refugee so I kind of connected with that story and she she went to Scotland and learned lithography there mm. and came back to Italy and realized that there were all of these lithography presses not being used because they were used by the army during World War II to make all these maps and they're no longer in use so what she did is she said because we've got all the technology there and the knowledge of how to use it, teach me how to use it. And then I will bring in artists, local Italian artists to then make additions. And that's how she started it off. And she was going quite well. And then there was this huge flood, the Mm. flood of 66, where the river rose up. And what happened is that there was this thin layer of film of oil that just covered everything. And so I don't know if you know about this big flood, but a lot of the artwork in Florence was destroyed and they had volunteers coming from all over the world to help clean it up. And they had all these different fundraisers and she she managed to make connection with Henry Moore because he Henry Moore Mm. spent a lot of time in Tuscany because he loved using the marble there. And so she talked to Henry Moore and said, how about you come and make an addition? And he came and they had a great relationship and he then bought all these other international artists from around the world, like that Mexican artist Tomeo, and mm-hmm. to, to do additions. So it really kind of became popular in, in that way. And it kind of really grew as a, not just kind of a place to kind of produce multiples, but then became more like an art center foundation for printmaking and art. And so I just, I just really love that story that that was an art center started by yeah. a strong woman. Yeah. <laughs> a great story and just super passionate. And so that's why I chose Firenze. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. And then was this kind of coming to the end of your time there, was this when you had that plan to try and do the studio hopping country to country? That yeah. COVID kind of got in the way of a bit. And by a bit, I mean, sounds like totally. Yeah, well, I thought, okay, I'm going to be a full-time artist. So I'm going to go first to Florence. I'm going to learn all of the different techniques. And then I'm going to go to different studios around the world. And I had this idea that I'd be like a technician because that way I could kind of earn some money. And then I realized mm-hmm. oh, a technician is just like- <laughs> It's not me. I'm just not a perfectionist enough. I'm just, yeah. So, I mean, I didn't get a chance to even do that, but that's not my, I love teaching. I do, I teach workshops, but I don't think I could be a a technician. Mm -hmm. Not my thing. But anyway, that was my idea. And so every day I would like run in there and I would say, okay, what are you going to teach me today, Louise? So they had a technician and that poor guy was like harassing him every day. Like, okay, what are you going to teach me today? And he's like, okay, Ina, today we're going to learn how to like file down the zinc. Like, okay, okay. No, no, what are we going to learn today? He's like, well, we're going to do Aquitant. It's like, okay, what are we going to learn today? He's like, but how about you just addition that print? <laughs> today you need to teach me spit bite, but you haven't taught me yet the salt. And you've got to teach me this. You've got to teach uh-huh. me this. 
<laughs> just like a little gremlin for print knowledge yeah <laughs> horrible students I mean he was probably relieved when COVID happened and they had to close the students like thank god I don't have to deal with her anymore no I mean he was lovely but I just maybe subconsciously I knew that I had to just learn as much as possible and I, I yeah learned a lot in that three months before they had to close the studio and I had to go back to New Zealand because of COVID but it was great so he the idea was to teach us the traditional way of doing etching from filing and sanding and all of that so that we knew how it should be done properly and then from there to push the boundaries so we had all that technical support and then we had another professor, a couple of professors, Monica would come down from Milan and she would, on a Friday, we'd go in, into the archives and she would pull out these big portfolios of these beautiful collections of work from different artists who had been there and resident, visiting from around the world, these gigantic colour mesotints by this, this Japanese artist and these beautiful etchings. So it was it was an amazing experience just to see that archive and see them mm-hmm. up close and really see how different artists had have pushed and are pushing the boundaries of, of etching. And and etching is as far as we got. We were meant to do then letterpress and, and this and that. Yeah. But we, we we didn't get there because of the because of the pandemic. But yeah, it was it was really an amazing experience and yeah one do you I'm think, so grateful for yeah do you think you ever would have left were it not for the pandemic would you be oh, look, still studying I, and teaching or something in Italy now I tell you what Miranda people kept messaging I kept getting these random messages from New Zealand from people I didn't know very well saying are you okay Ina I heard like you're in the middle of the pandemic there. I'm like, oh, and I'd be like, no, it's fine. It's fine because I literally would just run to the studio every day, work, 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 run back, work, work, work. I didn't watch the news. I refused to oh, turn the TV. Uh-huh. So I had no idea about really the level of what was happening with the global mm-hmm. pandemic. I was like, oh, nah, are they just being, oh, they're just being overdramatic because I've been living in Sicily where they literally were very overdramatic about flus. Like they'd bundle their kids in puffer jackets. Like as soon as it got a little bit cold and be like, oh, you can't get the flu and you can't get a breeze. And so I was like, oh, it's just drama. It's going to pass. It's going to pass. I refused. I refused to go. And then I got a message from a friend saying, Ina, do you know they're going to close all the borders? Every country mm-hmm. is going to close their border. And I was like, What? Yeah. And then I had a panic attack and I <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, okay, okay. And I booked a ticket back to New Zealand and I emailed the New Zealand embassy and said, are you going to evacuate people? I'm here if you want to evacuate me. And mm-hmm. and then I got a ticket as I sorted. And then I emailed the, the lady and said, it's, it's fine. I got a ticket. So the, she then emailed me back the embassy lady in Rome and said, Ina, what ticket did you buy? Because there's not many tickets left out of Italy. And so I've, I've booked one that stops off in Bangkok. She said, oh, they won't let you on that plane. You cannot transit there. <sighs> and so then a panic attack again. I was like, oh, okay. And she said, look, I'm going to help you. I'll help you find a ticket. So she found me a ticket and she said, okay, I found your ticket. It's at 11 a.m. tomorrow leaving from Rome. Wow. And I said, well, there's no... There, They've reduced the number of trains from Florence. I can't get there in time. She said, well, you're going to have to taxi down there. So I said, okay, well, I found a taxi. They're going to charge me like 500 euros a taxi down there. She said, oh, no, that's a ripoff. That's a ripoff. Oh, no, no. I can arrange. So she said, call me back. said, no, don't worry, Ina. I found Bruno. Bruno is our embassy driver. I'm going to send him up to pick you up at 5 a.m. tomorrow morning to take you down to the airport to get on that plane. Gosh. Because I think so. I think that was like the last flight mm-hmm. out. So at that point, my nerves were so shattered because I was like, oh, my God, am I even going to get out? And so Bruno turns up. It's like a Bond movie, steps out of his car <laughs> and he's wearing a black leather jacket. And I jump in the bag. We, we scoot off down there. There's no one on the motorway, so we just zoom right down to the airport. The airport was just apocalyptic. Like, I've oh. so depressing. Like, literally, the woman who checked me and didn't even give me eye contact just kind of grabbed my bag, chucked it in, jumped on the plane, 
was like, okay, you can't relax yet. You can't relax yet because you're not there yet. Transited in Munich. In Munich, 10 minutes before I was to get on my plane in Munich, they called me to the counter and said, oh, we notice, Ina Arawi, that this flight wasn't purchased with your credit card. We need proof that you purchased this ticket, so we're not going to let you on this plane. And I was like, <laughs> um, luckily, I called my mum, and my mum still has a landline, so I'd purchased it with her, tick, with her card. And luckily my mum answered, the, she didn't answer the first time, because it was 3 a.m., she answered yeah. the second time because it's a landline, so oh, it must be something wrong. Answered the phone. I said, mum, you've got 10 minutes to scan and email these three bits of proof and luckily she had it right there in the safe <sighs> did it and I was able to get on that plane. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I absolutely just traumatized and I and yeah I did have a bit of PTS. Like every time there'd be an emergency lockdown alert for about a year after, my whole body would just, when it heard that alert, my whole body would just start shaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, I was just like, I don't want to leave Italy. And then when I left, the funny thing is when I left Italy, I said to the people I was living with, I said, oh, that box of stuff is my stuff. I'm just going to leave it there, but I'll see you next month. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I was so mm-hmm. much so, Yeah, the answer to your question is I wouldn't have left if it wasn't yeah. pandemic. Yeah, that's yeah, just you describing that just brings back so many memories of that time and and thinking about particularly if you hadn't been following very closely, the shock of it all falling on you at once. It was shocking enough to those of us who had kind of been watching it. Like I'd been, you know, really funny. I, I don't spend any time on Twitter, but in like November 2019, I saw a a random little tweet that said, hey, here's five news stories that people aren't covering. And one of them had to do with some kind of policy chains at like Singapore, Netflix, and one of them had to do with this and that. I wasn't really paying attention. And one was, there's been a novel virus discovered in, in Wuhan. Mm. And, and so I had actually had it a little bit on my radar, I think even before other people, because I was just like, oh, that's interesting. And I'd remembered SARS and all of that. And it still was a shock. My Speaking of you on the last flight out of Rome, my husband was on one of the last flights back into Australia. He had gone home for his grandfather's funeral. And he was right before they shut down those borders. He was like one of the last two, three flights. And then he was on an interstate bus with one of the last, one of the first COVID cases in Australia. Oh. which thank goodness it was a, a woman who had masked and she actually only spread it to maybe the two people next to her because she was a responsible citizen who I think just was 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 masking. But so he ended up being fine. But we ended up in quarantine as some of the first people in Australia because he got this call from the Australian government saying, oh. hey, mate, guess what? <laughs> you know, so just that 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 early time and the, the international drama and it's just it's all in that space of of just complete unknown. Mm-hmm. We just we, we was nobody had living memory of a situation like this before mm-hmm. and no one had seen it, something like this in the age of air travel. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at the Spanish flu is the most recent hitherto global pandemic. So yeah, it's that's that's a remarkable story, but it 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 brought you home. Uh, to New Zealand. And that's the problem. New Zealand's so far away to get there was, yeah, it was really tricky. But yeah, luckily I I made it and I made it just before New Zealand kind of went into lockdown too. So I managed to get Mm -hmm. down down to my parents' house in Nelson and did the whole first lockdown there, which was was great. (laughs) Yeah, definitely I would say preferable to – I guess I can just speak from my own experiences of having spent most all of the of the real deep dark 18 first 18 months of lockdowns away from home. You know, I was in Australia and then I was in Bangkok. Mm. And so that that distance when things are profoundly scary. Mm. The distance from family feels so much greater. But at least in in my situation, both Australia and Thailand were doing so much better than the US in terms of coping that my family just was sort of like, well, 
you're definitely better off there. Mm-hmm. So just FaceTime us, which yeah. is probably what we'd be doing if if I was home because we, we weren't quarantining together. So, but yeah, I definitely understand that. So mm-hmm. it, 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 it brought you back and, and mm-hmm. kind of with this, this, this knowledge and this, this hero's journey that you had in, in Italy of, of, of learning and gathering and, and studying. Mm-hmm. And then, so you were, you were home in New Zealand and at what point did the idea for Printopia first sort of pop up as an idea of something that you'd like to, to see in the world? Well, I mean, as soon as I got, because even before I left here, I thought there needs to be an open access print studio here. It's insane. It needs to exist. And so even when I got back, I was thinking, well, what am I going to do now? Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? <laughs> you know, and just thinking, well, if I go to Auckland, there's like, where can I go and make, I can't, there's not even a studio that I can go and make my work in. And so I, was, I kind of thought, well, why don't I do, do some research about, what other artists are doing and how they're doing it. And and then I got this really cool opportunity to go to Wellington and be part of this team to put together an exhibition about Mexican food culture. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. I applied because I had planned to go to Oaxaca, Mexico. Of course, it's like a mecca of wood. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, oh, well, I was going to go to Mexico this year, but I can't, so I'll do this exhibition instead. <laughs> And so I did, I went down there and it was, it was really cool. And it just made me realize, and all during this time, I kept doing interviews and writing articles and put them on my website. And during this time, I thought, after this, I thought, well, actually you can do anything, whatever you want. Mm. And you want to showcase what these amazing artists are doing and how can you best use your skill set to do that? And my skill set is event management and festivals my background is in that so in 2000 I went to live in California for three years I didn't plan to go for three years excuse me I just planned to go for like three months to stay with my mom's family and get to know my grandma and my aunties but ended up saying three years because I started volunteering for this African Caribbean music and cultural festival Uh Mountain View California and it was I had such a great time that I ended up saying three years and that festival, that's kind of what got me into events and festivals because I just saw the I just saw the power of art to bring people together and to really promote cultural diversity and connect people. So I thought, well, that's how I'd like to bring together the print community is I'd like to have mm. a festival. Festivals are fun. Like I thought I could have just a print fair or a symposium but no festivals are about fun they're about bringing people together Mm -hmm. about having so many events that you I love that feeling of you can't do everything and like every year in my survey I asked what's the what was the highlight and you know what enjoy the most and what could be improved and there's always people say I couldn't do everything Mm -hmm. and I was perfect to me that is a compliment that is great because you should get that feeling of like there's so much to do you know so yeah, that's kind of what gave the idea to do. The idea kind of first popped up after I'd been in Wellington doing this big exhibition, which I did all the public programming for and did a lot of the interpretive design of the exhibition. And so I came back up to Auckland and went to my local art centre and said, hey, I'd love to do a festival here. And I was really lucky because the director of that art centre was really supportive. They would just got this huge big press and they'd started doing like drop-in print Tuesdays in a Tuesday morning. So they said, yeah, that would be great. So I started planning it all. And then there was another lockdown, a big mm. Auckland, literally Aucklanders couldn't leave Auckland for four months. Wow. <laughs> and so I had this dilemma of should I just cancel it or should I postpone it? Because they couldn't even – they couldn't say when we're going to be out of this lockdown right yeah and I thought look if I if I cancel it I think that'll be it I won't do it again you know but I'd already done all the planning and I was so excited about it because I'd done all these interviews with all these artists across the country and I was like I want to bring them all together like I already had people who were keen to come along and do workshops and talks and demos and so I was like okay no it's got to happen 
And so what I did is I changed the venue to have more space to be able to have that social distancing. So the first one last year, everyone was wearing masks. I put the photo mm-hmm. at the photos, like everyone's wearing masks, everyone had to social distance. We were still in like the orange level or whatever it's called, whatever it was called. So that was a huge challenge, but it happened and there was this amazing buzz and everyone was just so excited and it was a beautiful sunny day. And, you know, from my event management background, I know just to have that level of achievement in your first year is mm-hmm. amazing. And people kept coming saying, wow, is this like the third year you're doing this event? Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, this is the first year. And they're like, oh, it must be a big team of you doing it. It's like, no, it's just <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah yeah and it was so good and I could just and I was like okay now I can envision this being even bigger and better next year without all the masks and everything so I said yeah it's happening next year and people say oh, how's it gonna be biannual I said, no no it's got to be every year yeah 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 and so that that first year was 2021 well I planned the first one to be in November 2021 okay but because of the lockdown, I had to postpone it till May 2022. Okay. So I, ch- I decided to change the month rather than, because it has to be, it can't be in the middle of winter or the middle of summer. So it kind mm-hmm. of be spring. And then I realized actually first weekend of May works really, really well in terms of, because I want it to be as accessible as possible. And that's a time when high schools and tertiary institutes are able to to kind of come and participate. They're not really busy with exams and tests and things like that. Yeah. So, And then, so in terms of the the programming and actually what happens during Printopia, tell us some facts. How how many weeks is it? What can you do during it? What are some of your favorite bits that happen during the event? Mm -hmm. Well, the the first year, last year, was just one day because mm-hmm. I needed to see what's, what's going to happen, how are people going to respond to this. And so the idea was that the first festival day was all the free events, and then on the Sunday were the workshops, which were paid to kind of pay for the free stuff. The idea was just to mm. break even. But this year, it's more kind of how I'd like it to keep rolling on every, every year. So this year is a three-day event. So Friday night, we, we had the print fair with live printing, and that was open to the public, and we had some drinks and food stalls and some speeches. We had a print prize this year, and so we had we had a little award ceremony with our guest judge coming over from Australia, a guy called Mark Dustin. I don't mm-hmm. know if you... I know Mark, yeah. Mark's great, yeah. He came over and he, he gave out the awards, and, and that was really awesome because I, I want to bring in a lot of young people and there were a lot of, because there were different categories. So I had a high school category and a lot of those kids came and came with their families and were taking photos in front of their work and saying, it's the first time I've been able to show my work. And and then they came back again on Saturday and Sunday. So that was, that was really, really cool. Then on Saturday and Sunday, downstairs we had three rooms, all with print fair. And each room had its own live printing station. So one room was screen printing, another was relief printing, and the other one was letterpress. So we have this guy here who has one of those beautiful Albion presses that he's put on mm. wheels. He can take it around different places. So that's that's downstairs. And then upstairs we had print talks and demos. And that's all free and open to the public. Then... We also had workshops on Saturday and Sunday, and they they were paid, and they were mainly targeted towards people who've had no experience of printmaking, so yeah. anyone could do it, the idea of accessibility. But we did have a few that were a little bit more intermediate level as well. Yeah, so that's that's the general structure of the festival. Yeah. That and yeah. and what kind of a response did you get? Were people kind of saying things like, oh, I've 
never heard of anything like this before in my life. What is this new technology? <laughs> or was it more of a, I've always wanted to know about this. I'm so happy this is here. What did you find was the general response sort of mixed with general sense of what people already knew about print before Printopia? Yeah, well, that's what's great is I really wanted to challenge people's ideas about what was print, who does print. Mm -hmm. So we had people turn up who were like, oh, I'm just going to come and pick up a friend or just stay for like half an hour, but ended up saying three hours because, wow, there was a guy printing from a fish. And and then there was this other guy like giving a talk about how art changed his life. And, and so it really, it was really good in that, or it is great in that it does bring in people who might have a little bit of interest, let's say they're a photographer and they're like, oh, I just want to check out what is this dry point printing on a 3D press. And then they go, oh, actually, that's quite interesting. I might give it a go. So I think, yeah, it definitely expanded a lot of people's perception about what is print. And this year we in the print fair, we had a lot of printmaking suppliers. And so people could oh, then great. go and buy like a little kit, uh, let's say to do mm-hmm. a or, you know, jelly plate or whatever it is that they wanted to do or they'd come out of a workshop where they'd just been doing lino woodcut and then they would come and then they could buy the carving tools and then buy a woodblock print and then have a go at printing one in the live printing so yeah I think that sounds wonderful I think for next year I'd like to have more live printing because Mm -hmm. people who are just dropping in who didn't know anything about printmaking I think that's a really great way to get people kind of hooked and curious and wanting to know more yeah I can definitely echo that from my recent experience with print Santa Fe and it wasn't even I think compared to what you're saying not even as as big of an undertaking you know we didn't have as many artist talks or anything like that but we had Ryan O'Malley and Full Court Press do a live woodblock t-shirt printing that's very portable that he drove over from Corpus Christi and we set it up right at the entrance to the print fair. And it was just this great introduction for people who had maybe seen it in the paper, maybe weren't really sure what they were going to see that really simple printmaking almost in its most basic form. That's just a relief block that's inked and transferred. You can see it carved in real time. You can see it printed in real time. And it was such a foray for people to get excited about what they were seeing. And then they could go around and they could talk to other people like the little friends of printmaking booth that does screen print and say, are these wood blocks? And while it might not be true, it's such a great pathway in to having that conversation about like, no, these are screen prints. You know what? Like, so what is this and how this is different? And and seeing prints made live it just lights people up almost universally. I think you have to have a heart of stone <laughs> if you don't get jazzed about seeing a a, a, a a t-shirt or a piece of fabric or a, a piece of paper or a block coming off a matrix. Yeah. It's just what's, what's wrong with you? you know? <laughs> yeah. So we had this guy, he had these little calico bits of calico cloth and these little lino blocks and people could choose which one they wanted and he'd print them and yeah you just see the the, the look on these kids faces like when they lift up the calico and there's Uh the print and yeah it's really really cool I love that's so great so uh, what about 2024 I feel like maybe you've had a little bit of time to catch your breath (laughs) since 2023 and you spoke a little bit to what you want more of in terms of more printing, but you know, we've got a pretty global audience, random hello print friend fact, our most, how would you put this? The city that listens to hello print friend the most out of our three quarters of a million downloads in the last four years is Melbourne. Really? I know. Well, they have some really cool open access print studios there. So I'm not yeah. surprised. Um, so I was going to say, you definitely have listeners relatively close and, and then also globally. So if there's anything you want to shout out or make a call for anything, I mean, this is a great platform to to do it on. Yeah. Well, I really like the format that we had this year. So a, a really fun kind of opening night event on Friday with the print fair And then on Saturday and Sunday, having back-to-back talks and demos and workshops 
and live printing. So what I, yeah, if anybody would like to come <laughs> to New Zealand, come to Auckland next year, please come in May. And if you'd like to, first weekend of May, which is the 3rd to 5th next year of May. And if they'd like to do a talk or a demo or do a workshop, please get in touch. My aim is to, I mean, my the big vision of the festival is for Auckland to be one of the printmaking hubs in the country and in the Asia Pacific, particularly mm-hmm. and in the world globally. Starting off in the country, it's, it's going pretty well. I think we're getting known now, but then um, I'd love to really connect more with the Asia Pacific in our, in our own backyard. So I'd love to bring over some more international artists next year, especially from our kind of Pacific rim would be great. So I'd be really interested if anyone's keen to, to come over and get in touch. Workshops, are it's all about accessibility. So workshops are kind of just tasters, just three-hour kind of intro, ta- intro kind of workshops. So kind of a longer three-day type workshop is probably not the format that we're going to go for yet, maybe in the future. Mm-hmm. But for now, I think this format's working quite quite well, and I think I'd like to stick with that for a little bit longer. So. Yeah. <laughs> so I wonder if you could could tell me your your vision or maybe what your ideal would be. You mentioned Printopia evolving into a community access studio in some way. Mm-hmm. And so what would that journey look like? Would it sort of be you get enough funds from it that you can open a building? Would <laughs> what what is how I, I I love the idea of a festival turned all around community access. How would you love to see that happen? Well, what I need, I really need good funding to mm-hmm. establish an open access print studio. Really, I would need central government funding or a philanthropist who would pretty much pay the rent for the first three years to get it off the ground. Mm-hmm. I think. And so what I'm doing at the moment is kind of putting together a like a business plan for that and then going to, I'm going to look for some p- possible venues and then if I find the perfect place, then I that's when I'll probably then go and pitch pitch the idea to different fundings and on different funding platforms mm-hmm. and and I guess, Printopia is a way to kind of build up that audience and that support so that when I do find that venue and I do find that funding, I can then say, I can get all those people on board to say, yes, we love mm. we love what she's doing with Printopia. We know she can run an open access print studio. We, we support it and we will be in there, you know. So that's that's kind of how I imagine it to happen and then – the open access print studio will be like its own thing. I don't think it's going to be called yeah. And then I would, and then once we have a base here in Auckland, then I'm quite happy for Printopia to become like a franchise. Do Printopia Wellington, Printopia Wanaka, mm-hmm. Printopia Melbourne. I mean, Printopia New York. So that, <laughs> you know, because to be honest, I don't need to run the open access print studio yeah. I'm on the board. But I leave that for proper technician people. And as we've discussed, I'm not a technician. Yes. <laughs> I have a vision and I'm passionate, so I'm happy to be part of the board and do all the funding proposals and, and all of that. But then I'd love to go off and do my festival all around the country and around the yeah, around the world. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, that sounds like an amazing vision because I've I've just seen recently almost congruently my print festival was at the end of April. Yours is mm-hmm. at the at the beginning. Just that power of seeing a room full of printmakers connecting with the public generally and 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 printmaking is in positive and negative ways very insular and close knit and and really passionate. But when you see that connect with people and you see people for the first time coming to understand what it is and why it's exciting. Mm. That's a real magic. Mm. That's, and, and I think something really Mm. essential to the mediums continuing to thrive because Mm. it is being shut down in university settings 
quite mm, yeah. enthusiastically. Yeah. And, and in part, that comes from the COVID pandemic, which has been a, a theme in this chat. But it's people see the equipment is big and complicated and dangerous and expensive, and you need a technician to 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 keep it up and all this sort of thing. So it tends to to go. And I know a lot of people in a lot of institutions that used the fact that it's a communal space and that we were in lockdown as that excuse that they wanted to, to, to end it. And so that question of how do people get to know printmaking if they're not experiencing it in university setting? And totally. the the first person I ever interviewed on the podcast, Woon Jin Ho, who is is now doing a, a PhD in, in Bristol at the, the Center for Fine Print Research. Mm-hmm. She and I asked her how she came to find printmaking. It was at a festival. She just she said she did a little lino cut as a kid and and yeah. that set this whole thing on the way. So it, it it has it has a purpose and and it has it's effective. So yeah, I guess if their print festivals are magic and we need more of them. Yeah. yeah I mean, both years, the the biggest feedback was when I said, "What did you enjoy most about the festival?" What most people said was the buzz in the air. Everyone mm-hmm. loved it. Everyone was just so excited. And, and they said, if you, if you went there and you weren't a printmaker, you'd want to be one by the time you'd leave. <laughs> and like everyone was just so friendly and warm and welcoming and excited. And it was just, it was that buzz. And for, so for me, that's, that's definitely the aim of every, of every festival is to make sure that that buzz is there and that excitement. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so good. Do you, you think that your your background in cultural anthropology informs how you go at festival making? Yeah, well, I think it's my it's my upbringing. You know, I grew up in mm. a I grew up in a very tight knit community. Community was really important. We were very independent, and but you know, you kind of you need to connect with each other just to, just to kind of survive. And I think the definitely showed me the value of community. So I think that's probably why I'm interested in anthrop- cultural anthropology too, because it's looking at human culture and the importance of of diversity and community. And so I think definitely anthropology has influenced my whole approach to festivals and and the power of bringing people together, mm. how mm-hmm. new cultures can, how culture is something that's always evolving. It's something that you, it can never be dead because it, the very nature of culture, culture is a living organism that's constantly evolving and adapting. And I grew up, my, my, my mom was from California, my father was from London, and then like I was very aware about this idea of like migration and movement and having to create new cultures where you go. And I grew up in Fern Flat, which is very much a new culture kind of that had arisen in the 70s about going back to the land. And yeah, so I think the importance of community is something that goes back to my my childhood, really. Mm, yeah. Oh, I love that. And And I think it's such a a hopeful and right note to to end on as we've kind of been reflecting through the arc of our conversation and the effects that the pandemic had and the isolation that it did have is that not being able to gather together in any safe way is still so fresh in our minds. And, and I know that I am taking it for granted less when I can be somewhere and just move freely breathe freely, mm-hmm. embrace people who I want to embrace and without that fear. I mean, that being said, I got COVID at Prince Santa Fe oh, <laughs> for, the really? second, yeah. I, yeah. for the second time. I, it was my second time yeah. with it. Yeah. So it's still there, but I'm, it was my second time having it. I'm, I'm boosted and it was, it was quite mild. I just, I spent a couple of days on the sofa and, and, and it was fine. And so you know, so not ideal, but certainly not without a presence in in gathering anymore. That's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, what are you looking forward to? What's on the horizon for you? I know you've got, of course, as soon as the fun is over from one annual festival, the fun <laughs> begins for the next one, months and months out. But anything beyond that that is is kind of giving you life right now? Yeah, well, I'm really looking forward to getting back to the studio. I haven't had much studio time in the last three or four months. So I'm, it's winter, so I think I'm just going to hibernate in my studio, which I'm really excited about. I've got a couple shows coming up. So there's one coming up in August at the Franklin Arts Centre, which is a group show called Women Beyond Politics, and mm. it's going to be shown alongside a portfolio celebrating 130 years of women's suffrage. So that, that'll be a really interesting show, and I've it really fits with this idea that I've been working on at the moment to talk a bit more about my my family history, and mm. and so that'll be that'll be really good. And I'm going to be working on that. And the other thing I'll be working on is there's a annual steamroller event happening in the far north called Printerpalooza up in Whangarei, and that will be on the 28th of October. And so I'm carving a big block for that. Last year I couldn't. I started the block, but I didn't finish it because I couldn't go because the borders didn't open in time for me to go up there. So mm. I'm just pushing off my block from last year, which is very satisfying to get that finished. And I'm going to start on my new one for October this year and go up there and, and print that. And, yeah, that's kind of what I'll be working on. And then in July I'll be going down to Wellington for a – a conference for art teachers and teaching a printmaking workshop there. And it'll be a great way to just connect with other printmakers. And then after that, I'd like to go up to Wanganui, which has quite a cool print scene and a lot of great printmakers doing amazing things. So I'd like to go up there and, and meet some of them and maybe interview a few and write a little bit about what's happening there. Yeah. So that's, that's on my. That's wonderful. Horizon. Yeah, I, f I feel like we didn't even get a chance to talk about your, your own practice or the interviews that you do. So we'll have to have you back on so we can talk a little bit about everything else that you do. We got completely sucked into the magic of Printopia mm -hmm. in this particular chat. So I, I hope you'd consider coming back on another time so we can learn even more. Well, I'd love to. Yeah, absolutely. It's <laughs> wonderful. Well, where can people find you? Where can they see your artwork? Where can they read your interviews that you do with printmakers? Where can they see your writing? Where can they learn about Printopia? Oh, well, Printopia, you can go to our website, which is printopia.nz. We have an Instagram, printopia underscore festival, and Facebook. For, for my work, my website is my name, inaarawi.com, and my Instagram is the same. You can read, if you go to my website, inaarawi.com, and click under print community, all the articles that I've written, they're organized under artist profiles and exhibitions and print studios that I've written about. So, yeah. Wonderful. I'll put links to all of those in the show notes, and it's been really wonderful to connect, and I, I hope that we can meet each other in person sometime at, at some print event out there in the world. It well, would be wonderful. Miranda, I wanted to come to your event in April, but it was too close to Printopia. <laughs> I know. What are we going to do? We're going to have to create some elbow room between our events. <laughs> yes, but I was thinking I might come over to Print Austin, the Print X1 Print Austin next year, because early... February is much more manageable for me. So yeah, absolutely. Or have you been to, or do you know about the the SGCI conferences here? It's still quite close. That's April, though. I think. Yeah, yeah. Are April, March, April, but yeah. But no, I, I understand that. Yeah, mid mid February is probably a little more breathing room for you for yeah, sure. Right now I need to do. I can't do April. I think SCGI is in April this. Week. Okay. Yeah, because I had a look. I thought, oh, that'd be great. Oh, it's too close. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, we will definitely stay in contact. And I, I'm just really looking forward to sharing your stories and, and what you're doing with the audience. So thank you again. Thank you, Miranda. And you have a lovely afternoon. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. 
Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friends sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week. My guest will be Julia Lucy. We talk about her journey to printmaking after years as a special ed teacher, her passion for layering and collaging her prints, and what it means to decolonize your garden. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Thank you.